All right, I think we can go ahead and get started. Come on in and find a spot. Everybody will need a set of notes. So if you didn't get any, they, they are at the back. And this session you see at the top of those notes is Apologetics Applied LGBTQ. Before we get into the notes themselves, I wanted to recommend some books that are out on the table, four in particular, but there are others that relate to this topic, but four in particular uh, that, uh, that Phil has already mentioned. One is Scott Oliphant and Know Why You Believe, and so I highly recommend that for a transcendental approach to apologetics. Scott Oliphant, Know Why You Believe. And then there is uh, James Anderson, What's Your Worldview? James Anderson, What's Your Worldview? Carl Truman, Strange New World. And Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. So Piercy, Love Thy Body, Truman, Strange New World. Anderson, What's Your Worldview? And Oliphant, Know Why You you believe. Top of page one, we say the subject matter for apologetic discourse includes literally everything. Since all of life, existence, values, reason, science, morals, and so on, is God referential, then all matters must be viewed from his perspective. Now, I listed existence, values, reason, science, morals. We'll cover each of those briefly when we get to page three in the notes. But for now, just uh, understand that this idea of a transcendental argument for God and then moving from that to Christianity is the idea that there is something required in order to make other things true. That there is, a, that there is a, something that is pre-required in order for things to be true that people already accept. For example, universal morality. How can you have morality that's universal apart from a God who makes it so? And so there is, uh, there, there is this idea of a transcendental argument for the existence of God and a transcendental approach to apologetics. And I highly recommend that to you. It is taught in the Oliphant uh, book and also in the Anderson book that I, I recommended to you. So, uh, those five categories, existence, values, reason, science, morals, but you could add others. All of those we're going to look at briefly when we get to page three from this transcendental idea that you've got to have God in order to be able to pursue those, those things. And I say here, failure to do so will of necessity distort the issue under consideration. While everyone interacts with all of these topics, directly or indirectly, moral matters are especially fertile areas to, as the Bible says, demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And that's because moral distortions affect how people live and how their lives affect others, often adversely, inviting people to question, inquire as to what it was that went wrong and how it can be remedied. So the truth of the matter is that the unbeliever cannot live with the consequences of his own worldview. And what happens then as they pursue that worldview, things break and things break down. And you see that in our world. You see that in our fallen world, that as they live in the immoral way that follows uh, from their worldview, then it begins to, to break down. And we're already beginning to see that in the pushback that's occurring in the, particularly in the transgender 
movement. So this workshop will apply apologetics to sexual morals with focus on the constellation of issues surrounding homosexuality in its various manifestations. So how did we get here? American Christians are facing a challenge that's arisen swiftly and forcefully in several secular areas, psychiatric, political, and legal. Now I say they're swiftly and, and forcefully. Swiftly, this has come up in your lifetime or since you guys are all very young, then just before you were, you were born. 2001, 2001 is the first time that any nation on earth ever legalized in the history of the world, a homosexual marriage. The Netherlands did that in the year 2001. So that's how recent this, this, this is. And so we say it has come swiftly. You know, here we are in 2023, and so we're just 22 years since, and much of your lifetime has been filled with an acceptance of homosexual marriage and homosexual expression. But the truth of the matter is that for this to be public and legal uh, is really quite, quite new. And it's forcefully come upon us because laws have been uh, in, enacted to support it, making it very difficult then for those of us who believe that this is harmful to human flourishing. While a few, I say in the notes, have long asserted that homosexual behavior should be regarded as normal and that federal civil rights protection should be afforded lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transgender and queer persons, acceptance by wide swaths of society has come very slowly over a few decades, but has gained stunning momentum in just the last few years. So I want to briefly just rehearse some of that, how it's, how it's come about, and then move forward. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, sometimes called the Bible of Psychiatry, defined homosexuality as a disorder or sexual orientation disturbance as recently as 1987, but has since removed it altogether. The acceptance of homosexuality by the psychiatric profession has paved the way for its advance in other areas as well. The removal of homosexuality from the psychiatric canon has undoubtedly facilitated the rights of those who identify as lesbian, gay, and bisexual. Adoption rights, same-sex marriage, and the, appeal, uh, the repeal of military prohibitions would never have occurred if homosexuality continued to be seen as it was just a few decades ago. And then politically, until just a few years ago, candidates for office felt obliged to define marriage as between a man and a woman. President Obama, when campaigning for the White House in 2008, stated his opposition to same-sex marriage. Once elected, the administration said his views of marriage were evolving. Later, the Obama administration announced that it would not defend in the federal courts a law that was duly enacted by Congress, a law passed in 1996 called the Defense of Marriage Act which for federal purposes defined marriage as between one man and one woman, and it allowed states to refuse to sanction or recognize same-sex marriages. That law was signed by then-President Bill Clinton. But in the years after, he said, Clinton said it was a mistake and that it should be overturned. And when DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, was challenged in the courts, the Obama Justice Department refused to defend it. So here he was as a candidate. He's saying that marriage is between a man and a woman. And when he gets elected, it's evolving. And then when it goes to the courts, uh, he's not, his administration is not going to defend it. And then in the, the military, bottom of page one, 
For all its history, the military had refused to enlist open homosexuals, citing problems with unit cohesiveness if enlisted men and women were forced to share a bunkhouse with someone who practices same sex. During the 1990s, Commander-in-Chief Bill Clinton ordered the policy to be changed to don't ask, don't tell. Instead of the military asking applicants about their sexual orientation, they would no longer ask at all, but still reserve the right to dismiss anyone who openly identified. That policy lasted through the administration of George W. Bush until the election of Barack Obama. He changed the military's policy, policy to, for the first time in history, allow openly gay persons to gain entry into the nation's armed forces. So you have the psychiatric arena, you have the political, but then you also have the legal. And the legal landscape on this issue has shifted dramatically. As recently as 1986, the Supreme Court ruled that states could allow, outlaw sodomy. If states could outlaw homosexual behavior, then they could obviously outlaw same-sex marriage, which all 50 states did. But in 2003, the court reversed that in a five to four ruling, Justice Anthony Kennedy writing the majority opinion, setting the stage for prohibitions against same-sex marriage to be challenged. As expected, the constitutional validity of bans to same-sex marriage was indeed challenged, winding its way through the courts and then reaching the Supreme Court in 2015. April 28th of that year, the court heard oral arguments in Obergefell versus Hodges, more popularly known as the same-sex marriage case. During that session of oral argument, Justice Kennedy said the definition of marriage is between one man and one woman has been with us for millennia. It's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we know better. So that gave some of us some hope that that decision would go uh, in, in a way that did not allow for same-sex marriage. But within two months, the same Justice Kennedy would write the majority opinion in yet another 5-4 ruling that made same-sex marriage a constitutional right that cannot be abridged by any state. All of this has happened very, very quickly. Within many of our lifetimes, we've moved from a society adhering to traditional Christian values to post-Christian culture, and now to the beginning of the brave new world that Aldous Huxley predicted in his book by that name. Given these changes and challenges, it's imperative for Christians to recommit to what the Bible teaches about homosexuality and also to consider how we're gonna interact with an increasingly hostile society and interact with those who are close to us who are affected by this cultural drift. So what I wanna do then, that's how we got here. It's come about quickly, it's come about in several areas. What I wanna do is create an apologetic framework for us to use then in addressing this issue, but really it applies to, to all issues. And it will be this uh, transcendental uh, argument that we, that we want to look at, uh, the transcend, uh, transcendental apologetic approach. James Anderson, who wrote that book, uh, What's Your Worldview, that we've recommended, asked the question, so how can God's existence be proven? He says, here's my answer in a nutshell. Even though God cannot be directly perceived like the ordinary things within the universe, it turns out, now hear this, that we cannot make sense of the ordinary things we do perceive and the universe of a whole unless God exists. In short, only a worldview centered on a transcendent, perfect, personal creator can make rational sense of the very things that we take for granted all the time. I think he's right about that, and we'll get to page three here in just a minute and look at uh, briefly five areas where that's, that's true. 
So middle of page two, you see it says God's design for sexuality. Over the next few pages, I want to take each of the key words in that, God, design, and sexuality, to give us a framework for how to, how to see this. And of course, it starts with, starts with God. All people are, I say there, of necessity theists because so many aspects of our lives are impossible apart from him. Now, of course, we know that there are atheists, atheists, people who say there is no God. Um, and there are lots of practical atheists, uh, even if people don't formally deny God. Uh, but as we saw in Romans 1 and Acts chapter 17, the Bible does not see any true atheists in God's world. You know, atheists say, I don't believe in God. God, in effect, says, I don't believe in atheists. That people know, and I made them to know, that, that I am. But they do deny and suppress that truth about him. And that's why the Bible itself, then, does not seek to prove God. It starts with God. The very first line in the Bible, as you see here, in the beginning, God. And Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Foolishness failing to appropriate, failing to apply what it is we have at hand, what, what it is we know. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day. They pour forth speech night after night. They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. This is natural revelation, general revelation in creation to which all people have access. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, God has set eternity in the, the human heart. And then again, Romans 1, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it so. Because for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been seen, have been clearly seen, being understood from what is made so that people are without excuse. So page three, top of page three, you have Acts chapter 17 that we saw this morning. The poets being quoted, in him we live, move, have our being and we are his offspring. Now you have these five areas of existence, values, reason, science, and then I left morals at the end because we're dealing with a moral issue with the LGBTQ uh, matter. And so I wanna just take a few minutes and talk about how it is that existence uh, requires, requires God. We acknowledge that, says, by the way, James Anderson, I'm using what he says about these, these matters from his book, uh, Why You Should Believe Christianity. That's a different book of James Anderson. And he says, we acknowledge that many things exist, stars, mountains, trees, rabbits, buildings, smartphones, and so on. But for those who reflect on these matters, the question arises, why? Why does anything exist at all? In a sense, this most obvious of truths that something exists is rather a surprising one. After all, none of these things in that short list had to exist. Each of them might not have existed. Stars, mountains, trees, rabbits, buildings, smartphones. Philosophers have a, a special term for things that exist but didn't have to. It's a fancy term called contingent, that these are contingent things or contingent beings. So the Eiffel Tower, rabbits, they exist, but they, they didn't have to. You didn't have to exist. Par your parents might not have met. One of them might not have, as I said in the morning session, swiped right, so there's no you. And that's true for all things in the universe, all, all of the universe, all of its parts and as, as a whole. 
Every contingent thing needs an explanation for why it exists, since it might not have. But hear this, that explanation can't come from the thing itself. It has to come from outside the thing. It makes no sense to say that something brought itself into existence since it would have to exist already in order to do anything at all. So the existence of every contingent thing has to be explained by some other thing, and that other thing has to be either contingent or non-contingent. Thus God. God is not contingent. You have to have a being that starts it all in a non-contingent way. It was necessary for him to be, necessary for him to exist. And so existence, as you think about it, and contingency requires God. Secondly, values also require, require God. We make value judgments all the time, concluding something to be either good or bad. Sometimes we talk about perfect or we talk about evil. Some are subjective things like coffee or whether you like a particular movie, but others are objective. They're good or bad outside of anybody's opinion. Antibiotics are good, the Holocaust is bad. So what is the objective outside of a standard by which that is determined? It can't be reducible to desires, to feelings, or preferences as if the Holocaust was bad for no other reason than most people didn't like it or didn't want it. I mean, what if most people did? Then what? You all know the name Alan Dershowitz, uh, an attorney, and Dershowitz's name has uh, come up in the whole Epstein documents that have, have come out recently. But uh, I saw him yeah, probably 20 years ago. He debated Alan Keyes. Alan Keyes is a politician, a Christian. But they were debating whether or not uh, God is necessary for morality. And uh, Dershowitz is a professing atheist. He says God is not necessary for a morality. In that debate, Dershowitz, who was a Jewish man, was forced by Keyes to admit in that debate that he can't, he can't absolutely say that the Holocaust was absolutely wrong. He's a Jew. How could he, right? Based upon his, his premises. And so that is where people who deny God wind up with regard to values, and we'll see in a bit, and morals as well. And something that is objectively right or wrong, uh, valuable, good or bad, must be absolutely good, not partly so. Otherwise, there would still have to be a higher standard by which we judge it not to be absolutely good or, or bad. So values require, require God. Reason, I say here, requires God. Our ability to reason presupposes a reasonable God. We take for granted our ability to reason, to judge between truth and falsehood, to extend our knowledge of the world using logical inferences and evaluation of evidence and decide what's reasonable and what's unreasonable. No other creature can reason as we do. And that means that the ultimate reality is a rational one. God is the supreme intellect. Since God is both perfect and personal, he knows and understands all truths. And more than that, God knows and understands how Every truth relates to every other. What this means is that your, our universe has its source in a rational mind. While there are aspects of it that seem to defy our rational understanding, the universe as such is not intrinsically irrational or unintelligible. And that is only true because of God. And further, Christianity teaches not only that we were created by God, but specifically that we were created in his image. And so you have this rational God that gave the ability 
for rationality and reason to his, his creatures, and he has made us in his image so that we possess that ability as, as well. And then thirdly, science uh, requires, requires God. Science is possible because God exists. In other words, the very existence and success of science depend on God. It's rarely recognized that science rests on a whole host of philosophical assumptions about the universe and about human beings that science itself cannot justify. No scientific experiment can prove these assumptions. Rather, scientists have to take them for granted. But if these assumptions are false, science itself would be futile. Scientific work takes for granted the existence of objective moral values. For example, scientists have a moral duty to be thorough and careful in their research, to be honest and accurate when they publish their results. Indeed, the whole scientific enterprise is driven by a value judgment, namely that it's good to understand how the natural world operates and that we ought to, in fact, pursue it. And science assumes orderliness and ongoing orderliness as well. And again, that's only true if, if we have God. And then lastly, but uh, last but not least, morals require God. This is an extension of what we said about values. Most of our value judgments are, in fact, moral judgments, as some are, and some of these moral judgments are absolutely wrong and evil, what the Nazis did to the Jews. Objective and absolute moral standards, rather than conventions, require moral laws that transcend individuals and societies. And so how do we account for that? So there could, there's a longer list, but that's just five things that require God in order to be true. And all of them are things that people take for granted throughout their every, everyday lives. And apart from God, you wouldn't have them. And so thus the transcendental argument for all of these. In the biblical worldview, middle of page three, God is the one who gives life its proper orientation. Sin results in disorientation, and then salvation provides God's reorientation. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what the biblical worldview is. That God is the creator. He gives us an orientation to himself and his world and, and who we are. Sin has entered God's otherwise good world, and so it has become disoriented and distorted, not the way it was supposed to be. And God is actively involved in reorienting his world, making it into, restoring it into what it was originally designed to be. So it has to start with God. Every, every area of life is God-referential, and moral issues in particular uh, have a, a heightened uh, degree of sensitivity as it relates to us thinking about God and how God is the one who makes them either right or wrong. So you start with God. And then secondly, God's design, middle of page three. All people believe in design, purpose, order, normal and right, because they instinctively talk about their opposite when things are not as they ought to be. One cannot meaningfully, meaningfully speak of disorder without having some notion of order, or of abnormal apart from normal, or wrong without right. Now, do you just, just stop and do, do you see that, that people do this all the time? That people talk about the way it ought to be, that people talk about what is ordered and, and what is, and what is uh, normal, um, and, and yet they can't do any of that unless uh, and they can't say that something is disordered or abnormal or wrong 
if they don't have the, the opposite. And whenever we speak of any of these, we're assuming purpose and design by identifying their deviations, disorder, abnormal, wrong, the distorting and disorienting effects of sin. So listen carefully when people talk. And they say things like this all the time. They don't like the way things are. And then you say, well, who says that's wrong? Where, does, where do the rules come from that say that this is wrong or disordered, disordered or abnormal? C.S. Lewis said, I have it for you there. My argument against God when I was an atheist was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight one. What I was comparing this, what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? When I say it's unjust, then I've got to have some idea of just. Well, where does that idea of just come from is the idea. All right, so let's try to apply that now, this idea of design that everybody assumes, an order that everybody assumes to homosexuality. Homosexuality is sexual desire for a member of the same, thus the homo prefix, sex. Homosexuals seek sexual satisfaction with members of the same sex. LGBTQ is the oft-used acronym that represents various manifestations of homosexuality. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Lesbian refers to female homosexuals. Gay is a general term that can refer to homosexual men or women. Bisexual to sexual attraction to both males and females. Transgender refers to those who identify as the opposite of their biological gender. Queer refers to those who do not conform to cultural norms around gender and or sexuality. Now, what does the Bible say about this? Here are some key texts on page four. You have some from the Old Testament. You have some from the New Testament, Romans chapter one and 1 Corinthians chapter six and Jude chapter one. So both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God makes clear that homosexuality is sin. It's against God's, God's design. Now, sometimes you will have people say, hey, we're not under the law anymore, so all that stuff that you know, the law says about homosexuality is not, uh, is not germane, doesn't, doesn't apply. And sometimes I think we play into that inadvertently because you know our Bibles have red letter editions to them. You guys know what I'm talking about? So, and I, I don't know, the printers came up with red letters. I have a Bible that has no red letters in it. And I do that on purpose. They're hard to find, by the way. But the reason I do that is because the red letters are not more important. You know, the, the red letters are the words that Jesus spoke when he was on earth, but they're actually not more important. The entire word of God is Jesus' word. Every piece of it. Going back to the Old Testament as well. And the Old Testament reveals the character of God and the character of God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New and you have direct New Testament condemnations of homosexuality as, as well. So here's a question that then arises out of that. If you're going to be a Bible believer, you simply cannot, people try, but you simply cannot deny that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is, is sin. But then practically, what does that look like? And the question I have here is, are homosexuals born that way? And over the next few pages, I try to show theologically and uh, what I think is a proper and thorough answer to that, that question. So I say here, one question that has arisen in recent years is whether some sins are a biological phenomenon. Are we simply born that way? 
Some point to scientific evidence that suggests that brain biology explains various sexual behaviors. Others suggest that the primary cause of at least some sexual struggles is early psychological influences in one's environment. It is true that both biology and environment influence behavior, but the Bible presents another factor, namely our sin nature. The Bible teaches that all sin flows from a depraved heart, man's inner control center. The heart is wicked, deceitful, morally corrupt. And it teaches that a sinful environment can have great influence upon one's actions. The Bible repeatedly urges us, for example, to stay away from evil people and ideas because they can adversely affect how you behave. Therefore, the Bible teaches that sexual sin of whatever sort is the result of a corrupt heart working in combination with evil influences. The root cause is the sinfulness of humanity, but psychology and environment also play a role. It's not been conclusively proven that a tendency toward a particular sinful desire is genetic, such that some are born that way. The Bible is clear that all are born as sinners. From man's sinful nature flows sinful appetites that he spends his entire life attempting to satisfy. Sometimes the combination of depravity and environment moves one to lying, stealing, gossip, and or murder. Sometimes the combination of depravity and environment moves one to a particular sexual lifestyle. But even if a person was biologically prone toward a particular sin, that fact would not reduce culpability. Every person is bent toward sin, but that's no excuse. So I'm just stepping back. You guys follow that? We're all bent toward sin. We're all born that way. We're all bent in towards sinning, and then how we sin differs. And so you're going to sin in ways that I don't, and I'm going to sin in ways that you don't. But Jesus said it's from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, all of it. So that's from the inside, inside out. And this is all due to our nature, a nature inherited from the first man, Adam, and the first human sin, which then raises now a subsequent question. How can I be held responsible for sin I didn't commit? So it, we do have a sin nature that, that sin nature then moves us in a particular direction. It's different for all of us. I don't sin the same way you do and vice versa. But we're now going to say that homosexuality, something that might manifest itself very early on in somebody's life, tendencies, dispositions that might show up very early on, we're going to say that you are culpable for sin in pursuing that lifestyle. And the question is, how can you do that if I inherited this sin nature from somebody else? How can I be held responsible for sin I didn't commit? How can I be held responsible for actions arising from a nature I didn't choose? And that's the Bible's doctrine of original sin. I've got this long quote here from R.C. Sproul, but I think it's worth reading because I think it teaches a very profound truth. He says here, we bristle at the idea that God calls us to be righteous when we are hampered by original sin. We say, but God, we can't be righteous. We're all fallen creatures. How can you hold us accountable when you know very well that we're born with original sin? An illustration may be helpful. Suppose God said to a man, I want you to trim these bushes by three o'clock this afternoon. Be careful. There's a large open pit at the edge of the garden. If you fall into that pit, you'll not be able to get yourself out. So whatever you do, stay away from that pit. Suppose that as soon as God leaves, the garden, the man runs over, jumps into the pit. Three o'clock, God returns, finds the bushes untrimmed. He calls for the gardener. He hears a faint cry from the edge of the garden, walks to the edge of the pit. He sees the gardener helplessly flailing around in the bottom, says to the gardener, why haven't you trimmed the bushes I told you to trim? 
He responds in anger, how do you expect me to trim these bushes when I'm trapped in this pit? If you hadn't left this empty pit here, I would not be in this predicament. Adam jumped into the pit. In Adam, we all jumped into the pit. God did not throw us in. Adam was clearly warned about the pit. God told him to stay away. The consequences Adam experienced from being in the pit were a direct punishment for jumping in. And so it is with original sin. Original sin is both the consequence of Adam's sin and the punishment. We're born sinners because in Adam all fell. Even the word fall is a bit of a euphemism. It's a rose-colored view of the matter. The word fall suggests an accident. Adam's sin was not an accident. He was not Humpty Dumpty. He didn't simply slip into sin. He jumped in with both feet. We jumped headlong with him. God didn't push us, didn't trick us. He gave us adequate and fair warning. The fault is ours and ours alone. The Bible links all humanity to Adam's sin very directly. Romans 5, sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, and then this way, death came to all people because all sin. So, all that, I think the proper conclusion is this, you're born that way and made that way. So, as sexual sinners, are we born that way? Yes and no. Yes, if by that we mean that we are all born with a sin nature, and that sin nature manifests, manifests itself different ways. Some have a tendency toward anger, dishonesty, or violence. Others a tendency toward particular sexual desire. But just as the angry or lying or violent person is responsible for his actions, so too the person who struggles with sexual sin. Consider the struggle that most males have with lust. It's only because of our sin nature that we look at women as objects and talk about them in locker rooms or other so-called guy talk settings in sexual terms. These bodies that we misuse because of sin are also bodies that are broken because of sin. They don't work as originally designed. The Bible says that one of the consequences of sin entering God's good world is that our physical bodies are subject to sickness and decay and death. The creation, Romans 8, was subjected to frustration and bondage to decay. Therefore, in the middle there, you see in bold. It should not surprise us that some guys and gals are born with bodies that are sexually broken, such that their desires are not natural, and their bodies do not seem to fit those desires. Why do men engage in sexual desire for what God forbids? Because we're born that way. That is, we are born with a sin nature and with bodies that are broken because of that sin. So I give that to you for your consideration as you interact with people with regard to the fact that people are responsible for what they, what they do. But yes, we are born sinners and we are born with natural dispositions and natural tendencies still culpable for what we do with those. So is homosexuality worse than other sins? Well, any type of sin in desire, thought, word, deed, omission, or commission, and a single sin of any type, is enough to violate God's character and damn us. And Christ's death atones equally for all sin. While all of that's true, it's nevertheless true that some sins are distinguished by what they affect and represent. That is, some sins have greater consequences than others, and some represent a greater degree of corruption. For example, as we've seen, the penalty for homosexuality in the Old Testament was death. Why? In part, because it threatened to undermine civil order. It threatened the existence of the nation. Dr. Mark Snowberger has cataloged the capital offenses in the Old Testament. He's found they fall into four general categories. Of those, the main horizontal one, human to human offenses, are those that threaten to undermine civil order. 
In addition to having great consequences, though, homosexuality also represents a clear example of idolatry, which is ultimately a focus on self rather than God. And it's for this reason that Romans 1, that I quoted this morning, and I have on previous pages in, this, in these notes, places homosexuality in the context of idolatry, the exchange from God to idolatry that's spoken of in Romans 1.23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. And in 1.25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That's all related to another exchange. In verse 26, they exchange the natural for the unnatural. It's the same Greek word for exchange in, in the entire passage. So God, start with God. And then you start with design. And everybody assumes design, things that are ordered, things that are, that are normal, things that are, are right. And then move to the issue of sexuality. What does the Bible say about biblical sex? It has three purposes, procreation, protection, that is getting married, protects unmarried people from engaging in sexual sin. First Corinthians 7 says that. It's better to marry than to burn with, with passion. So if God has given you the desire to be married, then seek, to, seek to, to be married and don't sin by engaging in sex outside of marriage. But then also within marriage for pleasure. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that married couples should come together physically and should do so regularly. And failure to do that is to defraud one another. And the Song of Solomon in your uh, Old Testament is not an allegory. Uh, I'm convinced it's not an allegory. People have tried to get around it for centuries in the church because it talks you know, very directly about the relationship uh, between a man and a woman. But I'm convinced that it's talking about the relationship between a man, a man and a woman. So uh, God is in favor of sex. He's the one who created it. And one of the uh, purposes he has for it is pleasure within, within marriage. Now, lastly, engaging the culture when there are no rules. So is there nothing weird anymore? Within our lifetimes, at least for those of us of a certain age, we've moved from a society adhering to Christian values to this post-Christian culture. And I quoted Francis Schaeffer earlier today. If you look at the bottom of page seven, Alf Alfred Kinsey was a biologist and sociologist at Indiana University. And he wrote a couple of reports in the late 40s and early 50s. These were based on 18,500 interviews. He made that which is right in sex a matter of statistics. Many people read his books. However, their real impact was the underlying conception that sexual right and wrong depend only on what most people are doing sexually at any <coughs> given moment of history. And this has become the generally accepted sexual standard in the years since. Just stop quickly and say to you, listen, as you think about and have to deal with all of the abnormalities that are going on in our, in our world as it relates to sex and seeing it in homosexual and uh, transgender and bisexual and all of that, as you do that, please understand that heterosexual sin is still sin. And one of the things I fear is that we can look at these uh, extreme uh, manifestations of sin. And then we can dismiss our engagement in sin. And too many Christians simply go along with what this prevailing consensus is in society about what it is they'll watch and read and so on. 
That should not be the standard. God's word and God's character should be the standard. Top of page eight, the vacuum left by this departure from norms of creation opens us up to, well, anything. It happens that the year after the Adams Family movie came out and their byline was weird as relative, <laughs> Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote his infamous mystery of life passage in a Supreme Court decision saying, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, and of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That set the stage for the same Kennedy to write that majority opinion in Obergefell in 2015. He says the Constitution the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. And that business of defining your own concept of existence and of meaning and of the universe and of the mystery of life, my goodness. And he tried to constrain this expansive individualism, but some saw through it and to where it will inevitably lead. And Chief Justice John Roberts dissented, and I'm just going to paraphrase what he says there for the sake of time, but he says there that, look, if you go down that road and you say two people have the right to decide if they want to get married and what they want to do in the privacy of their own home, uh, Justice Roberts said, uh, who said it's confined to two? He says, why can't it be three? Why can't it be four? And so Kennedy tried to keep it at two. But the truth is, in the logic of the decision, there's nothing that keeps it at two. And if you want to see where this really goes, look at the bottom of page eight. At that point in 2015, one can only imagine and dread the kinds of relationships that would be sought in the future by those untethered to any absolute except their own fallen desire. And just a couple of months ago, Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton, I had to read him at the University of Michigan. 40 years ago, guy's still alive and tweeting. But here's what it says. He tweeted, here's another thought provoking article. Is zoophilia morally permissible? Okay, that, I'm just gonna move on. That, that would be sex with animals then. And I simply have it here to just make the point, all bets are off. On what, stand, on what basis do you say it's only two people? On what basis do you say, right? You see it there, there it is in, in black and white. When questioned top of page nine about this, he gave his response. And interesting, I have a line there that says, uh, Singer is a vegan, precisely because he believes it's wrong to harm an animal. So killing an animal is wrong, but okay, I'll just, let's just, let's just move on. So as we think about engaging our world in light of, of all of this, consider the fact that what the Bible teaches and how the Bible says that hum, human, humans are to live results in a good thing, human flourishing. The biblical way of life is good for everyone. Even those who do not pursue it nevertheless benefit from it as Christians are, as Jesus said, the salt of the earth. Believers need to recover their confidence that the Christian faith is in fact good and right for all people. We do not simply believe that Christianity is true for us. It's true for all. It's not just good for us, it's good for all. Now, that being the case, you might say, all right, with all this craziness going on, we need to pass laws that outlaw everything in sight. There ought to be a law. But I say, middle of page nine, some make the mistake of thinking that there should be a law against everything we believe is wrong. For example, why I, do not, I don't use profanity, I don't appreciate hearing it from others, 
I'm not interested in laws against it, and there have been many over the years. As free speech in a pluralistic society means I have to put up with some of your stuff. But the good news is it means you have to put up with mine too, including my right to preach God's word and give the gospel. So where would you draw the line on things that we would try to enact in law? And I think one way to think about it is natural law. If you do not seek to outlaw all instances of immorality, then how do we decide when to do so? Many answers have been proffered, one of which is we should hold people accountable for matters contained in natural law. It comes by, as we saw this morning, it comes by uh, natural uh, general revelation to which all people have, have access. Now, as you try to, though, enact any law to say this is wrong, abortion is wrong, same-sex marriage is is wrong. If you try to enact any law, and all of those, I think, should be against the law because they do violate natural law. But even when you do that, people are going to say, bottom of page nine, but who are you? Whenever one advocates for a law to regulate morality, she's inevitably asked, who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? One response to that is to ask who you have to be. Like, who do I have to be in a democratic society in order to advocate for particular laws? Isn't that the way we actually get our laws uh, passed? In fact, it is. Top of page, top of page 10. Nancy Piercy says, the biggest barrier to even considering Christianity today is its moral standard. Many people are no longer asking, is it true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? The challenge is to show that in reality, biblical morality expresses a higher view of creation and the body than secular morality does. It grants greater dignity and worth to the human being. It's ultimately more fulfilling. Therefore, we should respond to the common charge of homophobia with theophobia. If somebody says you're a homophobe, say, you know, no, I'm a theophobe. You know, so, so phobias are fears, right? And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So I'm not a homophobe, I'm a theophobe. The former, former refers to our supposed fear for ourselves, while the latter results in fear for others. That is, we're not afraid of homosexuals or homosexuality. Instead, we're afraid for them because of our fear of someone else, our God, and they're our creator. And so it's our desire to love our neighbor and thus see human flourishing in the laws that are passed and the mores that are prevalent in society. Bottom of page 10. So we should then model human flourishing in both word and deed. It means living in a way that shows that our life, the life that God designed is best. Among other things it requires, last page, that you participate in family life in the church as a family of families be in a Bible-believing church that upholds these, these standards and then sees them played out in families that are, that are honoring God and showing a better way of life to an onlooking world. Present biblical family life as desirable, extol marriage as a blessing. Fornication, adultery, and pornography are evil. Extol children as a blessing. Abortion, surrogacy, homosexuality are evil. Resist participation or encouragement in deviations from biblical family life. Do not prevaricate. Uh, just, I, it, it means lie, don't lie. The reason I said prevaricate is because the next point is do not promote. And I was trying to get three Ps on those, but it didn't work out. But do not prevaricate, meaning if you're in a job where you are told you have to use pronouns that says that someone is a man when in fact they're a woman, you can't lie. 
Now, the good news is I believe the court system is going to rule in our favor on this, ultimately, when it gets to the Supreme Court, and it is winding its way up to the Supreme Court, that people have rights, religious rights, as employees, and they can't be forced to, to, to do this. So if I were employed at an employer who said I had to do this, then waiting until the, the court decides before I lose my job, here's what I would recommend. I would go to human resources. I would say, I'm doing this under protest and I want this put the protest put in my file uh, because if I get ultimately fired when I refuse to do it after the court rules, um, if I do get fired, then I need that on file that I, that I, that I protested. So I would go along for just that temporary period of time to keep your job, put it on file, I'm protesting, and then the Supreme Court is going to rule and maybe as early as this coming year. So do not lie, do not promote when invited, encouraged, or even coerced to attend functions or accommodate lifestyles at variance with biblical beliefs, you have to respectfully decline. You don't go to a same-sex wedding, uh, for, for example. And do not follow the crowd or your, your feelings. You know, for you yourself, if you're struggling with this and, you're, and your feelings are moving in the opposite direction of your biological sex, then don't allow your feelings to rule what God has objectively said about you. Here's the conclusion. The Christian worldview begins with the way things were designed to be against which we can identify deviations and apply correctives. But our culture's abandonment of that worldview has left us adrift, unmoored by any consensus regarding societal mores, and leaving each to do what's right in his own eyes. Let's engage in apologetics and evangelism while we pray for revival. Should the Lord grant it, we'll see people saved from every variety of sin, including the so-called respectable ones like pride, anger, gossip, and also it will begin, become normal to identify what's not. All right, thanks for letting me go four minutes over.